Welcome to episode 48 of Sex with Strangers, live in Chicago with Dr. Jen Gunter and comedian Corey Bell. Normally on this show, we hear from a few different people about identical or at least similar topics, but today we're doing something completely different. We recently had our very first live event at the Pleasure Chest in Chicago, and as you're about to hear, it was a really great time. We had quite a few more people than we had chairs, so a lot of folks had to sit on the floor or stand for the show, but everyone seemed to have a really great time anyway. And future live events may have to take place in slightly larger venues. But without further ado, let's go to the pleasure chest. Dr. Jen Gunter is the author of this book right here, which is called The Vagina Bible, The Vulva and the Vagina, Separating the Myth from the Medicine. One of the things I know that you were adamant about was getting the word vulva into the title of the book. Yes, that's correct. Now, just by show of applause, how many of us know the difference between the vulva and the vagina? And do I have a volunteer who wants to prove that? <laughs> okay. Someone I know. Fantastic. KT, what? Vulva is the external genitalia and the vagina is the actual birth canal that goes internally. Is there anything you would like to add no, to No, I mean, Jen? the vagina is the inside. The vagina is the inside. The vulva is the outside. And where the two overlap is the vestibule. Just by applause, who just learned something from that? All right. Okay. Vestibule. It's a great term. <laughs> Let me touch your vestibule. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. We had sort of a, a random discussion when you first got here about the fact that you are not just knowledgeable about the human reproductive tract. You also know quite a bit about elephant hymens. I do. I do. I do. I know a lot about hymens in general. So yeah, I do. I know about elephant hymens and camel hymens and cat hymens and dog hymens because I bought a book on reproductive physiology of mammals and I read it. What's the most interesting animal hymen fact that comes to mind? Well, I think the elephant hymen, it's really fascinating because it only breaks when they give birth for the first time. So it's intact until then. So I think that's pretty unique. And I didn't know that when I read it until I read it. Right. And the reason that we were talking about hymens when, when you first came here. Was, As one does. It's a great new way to welcome someone into a space. It's just to <laughs> talk about hymens. It's because you. How you... long did it take to break that one in? <laughs> Not long enough. <laughs> So you were active on Twitter today, as you often are. You are Twitter's resident gynecologist, and we'll, we'll talk about why you have that title in a bit. You saw something that T.I. had said about his, his daughter's hymen. Yeah, I mean, it's never a good idea to talk about anybody else's hymen but your own, um, if even then. Uh, but yeah, so he did an interview. I don't know which news outlet he did the interview with, but uh, he was talking, you know, very specifically and adamantly about how he takes his daughter to the gynecologist every year to have her hymen checked. And she's now 18. 
Um, and so that was, you know, obviously offensive on so many levels, but I thought that was a great opportunity for me to educate people about the hymen and how it's, it's absolutely a social construct. The biology of the hymen has nothing to do with virginity or sex at all. And, uh, and I had actually recently done a talk for a group in Canada called the walrus on it. So, which is why I bought the book. So I could talk all about animal hymens as well. So, yeah, so I, I, just did a Twitter thread about uh, why why that was all incorrect medically and what people should know. And it's always nice when, I mean, it's it's a horrible reason for a thread like that to go viral, but it's nice to have people be able to have the opportunity to learn. Right. And in, in your book, in the sort of, there's an introductory letter from the publisher who mentions, or the editor of, mm-hmm. of um, Kensington Books. Yeah, Kensington. Yeah, yeah. And she she said that what inspired this book, which I think is just like one of the great inspiration stories for for a book of all time, was a blog post that you you put up entitled "Don't put ground up wasp nest in your vagina." Oh, that's true. That's true. That's right. Um, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> uh, true. So um, so so late one night when I had nothing else to do, I was. Um, tootling around gyno Etsy as one does. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, I just put like vagina into random search places and look and, um, and lo and behold on Etsy, um, there was this thing came up Oak galls, which I didn't know what they were. So I had to look them up and they're like this, like, you know, that paper stuff that wasps nests are made out of, like, that's what the larvae grow in. I'm, which I was like horrified and they were selling it to put in your vagina. You're supposed to grind it up and put it in because many, many cultures have this idea of using vaginal astringents, which are very harmful. They're, you know, they're meant to dry and tighten the vagina, which obviously, you know, not only leads to painful sex, but increases the risk of, of transmission of viral STDs specifically, um, or STIs if exposed. So, uh, yeah, so I wrote about that. Um, and, uh, I, I, I don't know, some entomologist explained to me that they weren't quite nests and I'm like, I don't know, I'm a gynecologist. I just did my best with, with the information presented. I saw wasp larvae in these little nesty packagey things. And that was my best description. So forgive my analogy, but, um, but yeah, so that was, that was a post that, um, that, uh, my publisher from Kensington read and was like, I need to like talk with that woman. So she sent me a letter by snail mail because she couldn't find my email address, which is great because that means that I've really done it privately. So that's good. (laughs) (laughs) And bits of wasp nest, even if it's not exactly wasp's nest is not the only thing that you're against people putting (laughs) in their vagina. Well, you know, I do like to say your body, your choice, but that would be a bad choice to make. Right, right. You think it's, there are lots of bad choices that people make in terms of the things they put in their vaginas. Well, I guess what I would like to say is there's a lot of misinformation that leads people to make those choices. I think that would be the best way to put it, that, you know, that, that there has this longstanding history of weaponizing um, you know, vaginal health and reproductive health. And there are so many insecurities because of that. And those are so easy to prey on. And so I think that, you know, these, there are many predators online that have these kinds of information. So yeah, so you shouldn't do that. I mean, medically it would be inadvisable. I think that's probably the best term I'd like to use. It'd be medically inadvisable. Um, and there are many things that are medically inadvisable to put in your vagina. There's also lots of things that are totally fun to do as well. So I don't want to sound like I'm a total downer there, um, but I just don't want anyone to harm themselves. Right. And common things that come up in the book that people put in there, 
is yogurt, garlic. Yes. I mean, great for fighting vampires, but that's well, about I, it. Well, I don't think Buffy had to put garlic in her <laughs> vagina. I saw that show. I saw every episode of garlic uh, of Buffy, and I don't, I don't remember any episode with garlic in the vagina. I'm just saying, um, maybe Xander. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So I, you know, and you know, where do where does information about garlic and yoga come from? It's in our bodies ourselves. I right. you know, right? And that everybody's like, what? But you have to put that book in its context, right? Like it was written in the 70s before we had a lot of the information we have now. It was written by people who aren't physicians because physicians weren't stepping up. And, it, you know, as hard as it is nowadays for people to say the words vagina and vulva in non-sophomoric medical terms, think about how hard it was in the 70s. So it's important to always judge things in context. And that was an appropriate book for the time, but that's not appropriate information now. Right. And towards the the top of your list of things you urge people not to put in their vaginas is douche. Oh, douches. Absolutely. The most harmful thing. Douches are like cigarettes for the vagina. They have warning labels just like cigarettes. I know. And then people always say, why do they sell them? Well, they sell cigarettes, don't they? I mean, you know, people aren't always selling things that are good for you. One of the things you, you write in your book is that even sort of putting water up into your vagina can be harmful. Yeah, absolutely. Even washing your vagina with, so up inside with water increases your risk of catching HIV twofold if exposed. You have to remember that vaginal discharge exists for a reason. And so you don't want to do any efforts to remove it. If you're washing with water, you could strip out the mucus, which is so protective and so important for, it's like a sort of like a tennis net spread out all over the cells. I think that's the best way to describe it. And it helps to deliver sort of the natural antibacterials and antivirals your body makes. But vaginal discharge itself, so the clumps of cells that are floating around in the vagina, there's this top layer of cells is shed about every four hours. And what happens is that's sort of like a decoy in the vagina. So if you get exposed to a virus or bacteria, they want to attach to cells. That's how they harm your body. So they see, you know, the vaccine bacteria and virus doesn't know if a cell is attached to you or if it's free-floating. So it meets these free-floating cells in your vagina, attaches to them, and your body's like, aha, and flushes them out with a discharge. It's sort of like, you know, nature's flypaper. <laughs> I know. That's always stops people. I think that's the greatest analogy. Remember, I get to make the rules. <laughs> so the dedication for this book is fantastic and i don't know if you want to recite it or if you want me to read it but i think people should well, definitely I'd have to hurt. read it okay okay all right for every woman who has ever been told usually by some dude that she is too wet too dry too gross too loose too tight too bloody or too smelly this book is for you and i think that's a yeah it's a common experience sadly as a gynecologist, I'm sure you encounter that all the time. Women come in to tell you all of those things that they've they've been given that criticism. And what do you say to them? I know it's it's a number of different things, but well, it's very hard to undo because there are very specific points in time, especially for younger women, when they are very vulnerable to cruel comments about their body and body image issues. And so this time between sort of the age of sort of 12 and 18, especially if these negative, I mean, they, those negative comments cut at any time, but they cut very specifically at that time. And you can literally cast the curse of a body image disorder by saying something negative. So there's that. So there's women who partner with men who get that first negative, you know, negative comment said, 
and they carry that with them for the rest of their lives. You know, I see women who can't have a speck of blood because their partner is going to be very upset if there's any blood. And I'm like, well, if you have a uterus and you're menstruating, then that's always going to be a possibility. Even if you're not menstruating, if you're menopausal, you know, sometimes, you know, your uterus just decides to, you know, to bleed and that's life. And making someone feel, feel bad for how their body works normally is, is a cruel, it's a cruelty. Um, and you know, I've heard this cruelty mentioned in so many ways to so many, so many people. And, uh, and I really, I feel that if everybody had the right information, maybe at the beginning, maybe that cruelty would stick less. Uh, and so because we're unable to talk about vaginas and vulvas and discharge and give people this factual information. So when you hear these horrible comments, you're not primed to be able to say, wait a minute, that's absolutely wrong. Um, and it's hard because you think this person loves you or likes you and and they say things about your body, about this most intimate place that they're supposed to love and they should worship. And so it gets all very confusing. So I hope that message of if anybody says anything cruel to you about your body, it's they have the problem, not you. I hope that message comes through. And one of the things you, you do mention in the book is that there, there are, for, for instance, um, medical conditions that can lead to dryness or odors and that kind of thing. But one of the things I thought was really interesting was that there was this figure, one third of the cases where people come in talking about odors, there's nothing there. Like there's no there there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and we ha this happens not infrequently in medicine. People think they have something wrong and they come in and we say, oh, no, you don't. I mean, that's actually what you want to have happen, right? You want to go in and say, you think I have something horrible wrong with my body? And the doctor says, no, you don't. You're perfect. I mean, that's actually the answer that you want, right? Every single right. time, you know? Um, so, so yeah. So when women come in and they have concerns about a genital odor, two thirds of the time, there's something that we can identify that there's a medical condition and a third of the time there isn't. And most of the time women are like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. I just wanted to have it checked out. Great. But a small percentage of the time they've been concerned about that because of something horrible that was said to them. Right. And then there's just the, the visual. There's the people who think they have broken vaginas or ugly vaginas. And, and you, you've mentioned that half of, half of women have, um, I'm trying to think what labia menorah that yes, protrude beyond the labia majora. Yeah. So there's a can very, you, can you repeat that just so sure. everyone, I stumbled on it several sure, times. Sure. Absolutely. So, um, so there's, there's a lot of discussion now about labia menorah and labia majora. Uh, and, uh, it's normal. 50% of women, their labia majora menorah protrude beyond their labia majora. And that's just how we're built, right? Like some people are tall, some people are short, some people have curly hair, some people are straight hair. That's awesome. It would be horrible if I looked around this room and every single person looked the same. Diversity is awesome. We want diversity, right? We want diversity in every part of our body. Um, but there recently has been this trend in the last 10 years to sort of imply to people who have vulvas that a longer labia minora is somehow wrong. And it's not. And it's a very fascinating trend. There was a study published last year in one of the aesthetic plastic surgery journals that suggested it was because women were concerned about how they looked in athletic wear, like yoga pants. And I really don't buy that because when I was growing up in the 80s, we wore skin tight jeans. I'm telling you, we had to lie. I had to lie down on my bed to zip my jeans up. Okay. And showing your labial cleavage, because let's not call it camel toe. It's labial cleavage. <laughs> 
I think showing your labial cleavage was kind of the point. Um, and nobody worried about it. I would, like that's why you wore those skin tight jeans. So I think that my personal theory is that this that's part of the predatory marketing, right? If you start telling people you should be worried about how you look in your athletic wear, then that's what people are going to be worried about. Nobody ever thought about that before, right? So, uh, so yeah, so there are plastic surgeons who advertise reducing labia minora so you can look better in your athletic wear. And I'm like, well, I see lots of dudes with their pants hanging down and no one suggests they should have their butt cracks sewn up so they look better in their jeans, right? I've never seen anyone suggest that men should have their penises made smaller so they look better in jeans. No. Um, and it's important to remember that your labia minora are sexually responsive. They have specialized nerve endings. They engorge with blood. They have erectile tissue. And so what you're saying is, is that women should reduce something that gives them sexual pleasure for somebody's aesthetics? I mean, no. I, I think that that's something that we have to push back at, especially because it's some kind of new trend. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of discussion about that. And, um, and even we see a lot of young women asking about it before they've even been sexually active. So you don't even know what feels good for your body. So I, yeah, so, and the term that we hear young women talking about now is they say they have an Audi vagina. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's, you think about that and you think how, how have we completely failed with sex ed? How have we completely failed at this point that these are how, how young women are thinking about their bodies. But yeah, so that's why I spent a lot of time writing about it in the book because, uh, it's, it's so important to have that information out up front. And terms like vaginal rejuvenation are thrown out there. It, it doesn't really have much of a meaning. No, it doesn't. So there's, I mean, in medicine, I mean, as in all kinds of marketing. It's very easy to use terms that don't mean anything to push a product, right? Because you can change it. You can change the definition anytime you want to suit your outcome. And you can't rejuvenate any cells. I mean, we all age and that's life. Uh, and, uh, and so I think this idea that you can somehow uh, make something younger is incorrect. But this idea behind vaginal rejuvenation is that you're pushing this tighter, smaller vagina, which, you know, I'm not sure what metric of pleasure that is. But, um, but you know, we have no idea about the long-term ramifications of these procedures. And certainly I've seen a lot of complications. So it's, it's very much buyer beware. Whenever you're doing anything that's completely unstudied, there you're assuming unknown risks. Taking on those kinds of things is how you became known as Twitter's resident OBGYN. <laughs> and was it mostly in taking on goop? Was that what sort of... <laughs> started it. I know everybody wants to hear about my pal Gwyneth. Um, so you were besties not, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think so. I think it was the cut who gave me that, um, that, uh, that sort of term Twitter's resident gynecologist. I think, yeah, I think it was just kind of standing up for facts. Uh, and you know, I've written about many things. I mean, I, I've certainly stood up to goop and Gwyneth Paltrow, but you know, I was the person, uh, when, <laughs> in the before time when Ben Carson was running for president, right? Before the apocalypse, right? Um, so in the before time uh, when Ben Carson was running for political office, uh, you know, he was on Fox News and he said that abortion was never, ever necessary for fetal research or for any kind of medical research. And I thought, wow, I wonder what like Dr. Ben Carson's medical CV looks like. Let me just go look that up because no reporter had ever done that. And because he's a fetal, well, he's a neonatal or he was a pediatric, I guess, pediatric a neurosurgeon. And 
And I'm like, I'm pretty sure people have studied fetal brains to understand about pediatric neurosurgery. Let me just go look up what Dr. Ben Carson has written. Oh, look, there is an article using 17-week aborted fetuses to study a brain anomaly. Oh, look, who's one of the senior authors? Dr. Ben Carson. I mean, you know, and it took me some just like regular chick with a blog to look that up. I mean, you know, why wasn't anyone else doing that? So, you know, I mean, I got a lot of, you know, hate mail over that, but it's important that people know that, you know, people shouldn't be hypocritical, especially physicians. Right. And now this is, sorry to return to Gwyneth, because I know you pivoted right to- I did pivot. I tried. (laughs) Just just what one of the, this is the only Gwyneth- question i'm gonna i'm gonna do it's one of the things she she recommends is vaginal steaming right i don't think she's actually tried it though if you actually see her talk about it um but anyway yes she does recommend either confirm nor deny okay (laughs) what is vaginal steaming and why shouldn't people do it uh, so the way Gwyneth Paltrow talks about it is you steam over a throne <laughs> of a, uh, you squat over a throne of steaming herbs like mugwort, which sounds like it's from Hogwarts, right? So mugwort, which is a close relative of ragweed. It sounds a lot less sexy, right? When you say you're going to squat over a steaming pot of ragweed. Um, so, and that's supposed to clean your uterus. So the thing that's offensive about that, right? Like your uterus doesn't need cleaning. Um, like I hate to break it to you, Gwyneth, you should have maybe stuck with biology. So, uh, and that is actually one of the oldest sort of myths that's very harmful to women is that the uterus is filled with toxins and needs to be cleaned, right? That's why women are excluded in many cultures during their periods where they're told not to come to the kitchen to prepare food. Uh, You know, they're excluded from, I mean, there's all different ways because of that. And obviously, if menstrual blood were toxic, why would an embryo implant there? I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. But that's how how myths, that's the power of mythology, right? Because it's a belief. It's so hard to undo a belief. It's, you know, so, so yeah. So the idea of vaginal steaming being a thing, one, it plays off this misogynistic trope. Um, and two, it's just totally biologically incorrect. And three, steam wouldn't get in your vagina anyway. Uh, and your vagina is a low oxygen or a no oxygen environment. So it doesn't want any, you know, air that could come up with the steam anyway. So there's all kinds of reasons it's wrong. Um, and obviously, I mean, these posts are written just for page clicks so she can sell more pashmina shawls or whatever. Key takeaway, don't steam your vaginas. Right. Steam clams, but not the clam. <laughs> I was a really bad joke. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they loved it. You you talked about this idea that's prevalent in the culture that the vagina is just this filthy thing that we need to clean and deodorize and all that sort of stuff. And then there's also sort of an infantilizing that happens at the same time where we have terms like vajayjay out there. Which I know you're you're as a physician, you're you're not a fan of people using the term VJJ. Yeah, I mean, obviously in the bedroom, call whatever you want what you want, <laughs> or on the kitchen counter or wherever you are, right? So call it whatever you want. You know, that's your that's your jam, that's fine. But but if you're talking about your body parts in any other way, then I think it's important to use anatomical terms because if you can't t- say the words vagina and vulva, the implication is that it's shameful. And where do people go to get information about shameful things? They go to clandestine sources, right? And why should you think your body part is shameful? How is your vagina or vulva any more shameful than your knee or your elbow or your toe or your 
you know, your nose. I mean, it's not. And these are medical terms. So I think it's super important to use medical terms. And if you, you know, Vijay J, I guess, came from Grey's Anatomy. I've never actually seen the show. But um, but what I read was that that uh, Shauna Rhimes said that they had an episode where someone was giving birth. And she said, stop looking at, you know, with the line she wanted to write was stop looking at my vagina. And the producers felt that the word vagina had been used too many times in the episode. And I started to think, so if someone had injured their knee and needed knee surgery in Grey's Anatomy, would someone have said, you've said the word knee too many times? Of course they wouldn't. So I think it's just important to sort of see where these words come from. And many of them are very infantilized, right? Um, like JJ, you know, private parts, lady parts. Like, I mean, you know, just say the words, nothing bad is going to happen to you. I absolutely promise that. Even if you say it three times into the mirror in the dark. That's right. Look, <laughs> my 16-year-old my boys can call it what it is. And if they can do it, anybody can do it. It's got to be interesting to be the 16-year-old son of the Joan of Arc of Vaginas, as some people have <laughs> called you. Um, well, it's pretty funny. I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, I was wearing this very short skirt, which, you know, was totally age inappropriate. So that's why I wore it. And um, and I said, oh, my God, this is vagina skimming. And my son said, Mom, that's labia skimming. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. <laughs> Another thing I've heard that you do that your your sons react like teenagers would react, I guess is you you like to time the length of sex scenes and like oh Game my god they hate that, that. Kind of they absolutely hate that so it's true so i you know i was we were watching Game of Thrones. And first of all, I, hadn't, I didn't actually know anything about it. My son said, I want to watch Game of Thrones. So I'm like, well, you need to read the books first. He's like, okay. So he reads the books. So we're watching the first episode. I'm like, is it this rapey in the book? He's like, uh-huh. I'm like, you weren't going to tell me? He's like, well, you didn't ask me that question. <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough. So so we watch, and then there's all these scenes where it's like from penetration to orgasm. It's like three seconds, four seconds. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's stop, go back. And I'm counting. And they're like, so now, like, that became a thing where I was, you know, trying to sort of see, like, how realistic these sex scenes were. Um, and, of course, it's like, I think the longest I got was, like, four seconds from penetration to orgasm. So every time I'd stop, they'd be like, oh, my God, what are you doing? You're not doing that. I'm like, I am. I, it's important to know. It takes more than four seconds. Um, and so, yeah, and uh, yeah, so, so we do that. And then also when we go to museums, because when I was writing the book, I didn't realize that. That, um, that no Greek statues have labia or pubic hair for the women, but the men have detailed penises and you can even see urethras in some and, and pubic hair. And I was like, wait a minute, that can't be true. So, you know, we're in like, you know, all these museums and we're like, I'm running from Greek statue to Greek statue to look at genitals. And my kids are like, I found another naked one. I found, okay, I'm coming, I'm coming. And so we're like, you know, it's sort of, so I think I should do like a museum, like a genital museum tour where we look at pub, we look for pubic hair in paintings and genitals on statues. I think that would be fun. We could drink too. Every time, you know, we have shots. Everybody'd be like so wasted at the end, but it would be fun. New drinking game. Yeah. I love it. So one of the things you talk about in the book is I think you created the term vagenda. I've never heard it. No, I didn't. Oh, I can't didn't. I can't claim that. I okay. would love to claim it. Um some right-wing troll came up with that term. <laughs> so so I know seriously, but you have to like take the words of your enemies and repurpose them. And so uh during the election, some I'm assuming some right-wing troll said that you shouldn't vote for Hillary because she had a vagenda of manicide. <laughs> I'm like, 
yeah, you should be like writing copy for someone. But yeah, Vagenda of Manicide. So I got Vagenda from some right wing troll who had that up on like, you know, those signs that like churches have where they change it each week. It's say he said Vagenda of Manicide on that. And I've never forgotten that. So I like to turn the words of my enemies against me. I so my best insult ever that I've had was from a goop fan. So people people say horrible things and I don't really care. They call me the vaginal antichrist. <laughs> Some awesome graphic designer made me this shirt. This vaginal antichrist is really beautiful. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm the vaginal antichrist, motherfucker. <laughs> I hope I can swear in here. It's okay if I swear, yes, right? Absolutely. All right, it's encouraged. Right. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> that was a really fun sidebar, but what is your agenda? <laughs> um, my agenda is so every person is empowered about facts about their body, really. You know, facts are empowering and they'll set you free. I truly believe in this concept of informed consent. So in medicine, if I want to operate on you, I give you the risks. I give you the benefits. I disclose my biases. And then you decide with your body if that's what you want to do or not. You say, yeah, I want to have that surgery. No, I don't. And so many times people make choices about their bodies because of uninformed consent. They've been given misinformation online or they've haven't had a bias disclosed for them. And, um, you know, they told something's going to absolutely help them or, or you have to be afraid because it's big farm or whatever reason. And I just feel that so many people are making uninformed choices and they don't know. And I just want people to have information so they can make informed choices about their bodies. And so that's my agenda. It's exactly what the vaginal antichrist would say. Exactly. Exactly. You mentioned in the book that you recommend .gov sites for finding accurate information? Well, it was, I did write that before the current administration took over, <laughs> so I will um, I will qualify that, although I do keep checking, and it's generally pretty accurate. But yeah, there was a study done a couple of years ago showing that .gov sites were more reliable than .org or .com, and that's because, you know, there are most medical information on .gov sites are curated by medical librarians, right? So, you know, you have to look at who's putting that information up. They're generally quite good at that. So, um, you know, that's an older study from a few years ago. So whether it still holds up now, because you have to remember, like you start writing a book, you know, two and a half years ago before it, you know, or you submit the manuscript like 18 months before publication. So, um, so yeah, so in general, you're going to get better quality information there. It may not go as deep as you want, but you're going to get better quality. And one of the things you dealt with in trying to market this book is censorship from Twitter. The day my book was released in the States, I was in New York and I was in my uh, my publisher's office at Kensington. And uh, they said, you're not going to believe this, but the ads for your book were, de were declined today by Twitter. I was like, what? What are you talking about? And they said, well, they said it was obscene. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I said, I need to tweet about that. And they're like, oh, well, we don't know if you can tweet about that. I'm like, well, if it's true, I can. So they showed me the emails and every promoted tweet that had the word vagina, vaginal or OBGYN were turned down as being offensive. I'm like, really, OBGYN, like my whole profession for caring for women, that's like offensive. But yeah, they were denied. And Twitter wouldn't respond to us at all. It wasn't until, you know, the BBC called them that they they actually responded. And of course, their answer was, you know, we just can't have offensive terms out there or the or the um, the ads were submitted in error. And, and they weren't um, because when they were resubmitted with those words taken out, they were accepted. Right. Yeah, I know. And it, of course, if there's nobody uh, with a vagina in the room making those kinds of decisions, that you can see how that would happen. Um, and it's just fascinating to me that, you know, Twitter is very worried about 
the word vagina in a promoted tweet, but they had like very little concern about white supremacy, right? Or, you know, other things. So it's very telling. Right. I mean, it, it really is insane because of this show that I do and the sort of friends I have on Twitter. Like, I can't open up my Twitter feed in public because who knows <laughs> what we're going to see. And so it's 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 amazing that just like an ad for a book was was deemed too obscene for Twitter. Yeah. I mean, an ad from a, you know, a well-known publisher from, you know, you know, from a medical expert. Right. So, I mean, and the, those answers are so easy to fix. You could easily have verif special verified accounts on Twitter's ad for, you know, for publishers. It's so easy to fix. They just don't care to. A lot of what you do in this book is myth busting. And I like to think providing facts and then, you know, that does lead to that as well. Right. And I, I'm just curious how, how many people have, and I've, I've already set it up so that no one's going to say that they believe this is true, but <laughs> how, how many people have heard that consuming pineapple will affect either your semen or your vagina? Claps, claps, claps podcast. <laughs> so- so pretty much everyone, it's super widespread. Mm -hmm. And I think most people believe it. Why, in your expert opinion as a physician, is this not a thing? Well, uh, so first of all, that would be based on the idea that you would need to change the smell or taste of your body parts and you shouldn't have to do that. Everything's perfect as it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it's biologically so stupid. Um, and I, I don't fault anybody who's not a physician for, for coming to that conclusion. I fault all the physicians for promoting it. I mean, just a couple of days ago on Kristen Bell's mom's planing thing, there was a physician saying, oh, you could eat vagina. You could eat, sorry. Well, you could eat vagina. <laughs> Yeah, what does eating vagina do for your vagina? It's good. I mean, look, let's look. Gay women have more orgasms, so you know, obviously, it does a lot. Um, but I think that what's super important to understand is that you know that this idea that you could eat something that doesn't have a vol because to smell something it has to have a volatile chemical. So pineapple doesn't. It would have to survive digestion. You would be eating in a quantity that you wouldn't smell it in your sweat. You wouldn't smell it anywhere else. Your vagina doesn't concentrate anything. That's not how it works. And nothing from your bloodstream gets in the vagina. So it's so ridiculous on so many levels. And it's such a pervasive myth. But it gets back to this belief, right? If people believe something, it's really hard to undo. It becomes like a religious belief, right? If you say to someone who, who believes in God, well, God doesn't exist for these reasons, they're, they're not going to believe it because that's a belief, right? So it's important to understand that these ideas that, you know, the vagina is dirty or the uterus is toxic or eating pineapple can change the smell of your vagina, they're a belief system. And where does that belief system come? The belief system comes that there's something wrong with the normal anatomy to begin with. And in, in this book is quite comprehensive. You cover everything from anal sex to condoms to sort of what to do if you're bleeding when you're having sex. Um, yeah. So I wanted to write a textbook for women. That's what I really want. Well, a textbook for everybody who has a vagina or who is vagina adjacent. That's kind of, you know, how how I looked at it. And um, and so I had a day in the office where I had seen five or six women in a row who all had these myths or misconceptions about their vagina that, you know, 
whether you use garlic for yeast infections, whatever. And they had got that information either from a doctor or from a partner or from their mother or online. And each time I corrected the misinformation, I said, well, no, this is really how this happens or this is how this works. And no, that can't possibly help you. Each person said, how did I not know that? And I heard, how did I not know that? Like five times in a row. And I sat in my office and I was like, how did they not know that? Like, how did they not know that? And I sort of went through that in my head over and over again. I thought, I've been writing about this stuff online for like six years, seven years. How is this misinformation still there? And I was looking around my room and I, I have still some textbooks that I use. And I thought, you know, women need a textbook. They need a textbook. And I'm well, I'm going to write it. And and so I did. And so I really looked at this as a textbook for women. And I hope that many people in the medical profession also read it because I cover a lot of the myths and dogma that we've all been told that, that are, you know, essentially that are completely untrue. And if you get the book now, there might be parts that aren't relevant at the moment, but will be a few years from now. Yeah. I mean, I, because it's a textbook, not everybody's going to have, you know, the first part is really, you know, what your parts are, how to make your parts work, what happens to your parts when you age, you know, menstrual products. But obviously it covers the whole, you know, the whole life spectrum. And also there's many medical conditions in there that you may not have. But if you have a symptom, well, knowing about those medical conditions might help you communicate with your doctor and advocate for tests or things you may need or or may not need. You might say, hey, why do I need that biopsy? It doesn't sound like I have what you think I have. You've been a gynecologist around 25 years, something like that? Uh, yeah. When did I when did I finish residency? Um, I finished residency in 1995, and I'm 53, so so someone can do the math. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got into residency in 1990, so um, that's when I started, you know, to specialize in OBGYN. So yeah. And how have the type of questions you get and the type of issues that people bring to you in a, your professional capacity as a doctor changed over the last two and a half decades? Well, I think really the biggest thing is the discussion we had about labias earlier. That's a very new thing in the last 10 years, 20 years ago. And I mean, I I operate on vulvas and vaginas all the time. I reconstruct labia when they're, you know, injured in childbirth or people end up completely asymmetric after, you know, childbirth trauma. And you can understand someone wanting to look like vaguely how they looked before, right? Totally. But, but this idea idea that um, that people who haven't had some kind of birth trauma need to have have sort of this cosmetic procedure done that's very new I before 10 years ago I couldn't think of one one person um you know maybe one in 15 years I mean it's very uncommon and you know now I might get two or three a month uh, requesting it so obviously there's been a social you know a change in the environment a social change there's been no sort of medical change in that time so that's been the biggest change um I think uh, there are definitely are more people who are more open talking about their bodies than I think 25 years ago, but I still think we have a lot of work to do in that area. But definitely, I think there's definitely more openness uh, um, and more openness to sort of discuss sex in general, more openness to discuss menopause. Uh, but but those would be, I think, the biggest changes. We're going to do a question and answer period with you, the audience. In in a couple minutes, first we're we're gonna have our comedian. A, a couple quick things about the the question and answer thing. I need to set, set up a situation where some of you can write down questions if you don't want to say them aloud. And if you do say them aloud, they will be recorded for the podcast. But we can change your voice if you don't necessarily want your voice out in the world. The two options are chipmunk or kidnapper. <laughs> 
So if you don't have a problem with that, um, we will disguise your voice happily. That brings us to some comedy. I would like to introduce you to comedian Corey Bell, who's, who's back there. And she is currently on tour with Monique and stars on the TV show Laugh Mobs Laugh Tracks and is from Chicago, Illinois, where we all are right now. So why don't you come up here, Corey? And yeah, I'm gonna disconnect this. So it's just gonna take, why don't you take this mic? Okay. And I'm gonna disconnect this one. I know it's uh, not your Hey, listen, I, I've performed at funerals before. <laughs> No, literally, somebody's mom passed away, and they were uh, Jehovah's Witness, and they were like, so we don't do this in a church, but can you come up and just kind of announce some stuff, but make it funny? <laughs> and I literally stood over a casket like, she looks great. <laughs> but then again, I don't know her. What do you guys think? So, um, First of all, I have learned so much in the last... 30 minutes of standing here um, I, and I rushed in here a little late because I was panicking about a yeast infection. Thanks, Doc, for, for letting me know that my vag is fine. And, you know, it's so funny because I was sitting here listening to all of the vagina talk and I was so proud of my little ugly vagina. Um, anybody else think they got an ugly vagina? Don't worry. She, that's right. Not anymore. Not anymore. My vagina made a comeback. Anybody else? That's right. Um, I was trying to figure out because I'm almost 40. Nobody else? Okay, screw, <laughs> screw y'all. Yeah. And I found my first gray hair under my arm. Yes, and I freaked the fuck out. And I told my husband, we'll never, ever, ever find out if I have a gray vagina, because I'm never not shaving that. Like, I don't want to walk around. If anybody follows me on like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Pornhub or RedTube, um, <laughs> I'm on all that shit. You'll know that I, I, I am a pretty sexy dresser. Most people will never believe that I have five children and a grandchild. Somebody went, <gasps> yes, it's true. Thanks. <laughs> five children, all over nine pounds, all vaginal. Four with no drugs. The last one I did cocaine because, listen, <laughs> no way that kid was supposed to be here. But, yeah, I, I can't be walking around dressing like a 20-year-old with um, a, a silver vagina. I'm not ready. Let me say I'm not ready yet. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just not ready yet. I don't have the hair on my head. I don't want to see it on my bush. Um. The one thing that I'm, I'm, I see that's dividing women, though, it's not the whole vag thing. It's tits. You don't believe it? Watch this. Women with small boobs. Make some noise. Where you guys at? Make some noise. Yeah. Okay. Women with large boobs. You guys make some noise. <laughs> There's probably about four women that didn't clap that should have. Um, but I think that boobs are dividing women, and I'm laughing because, like I said, some of us didn't clap. I happen to be... Um, and that's so funny, now that I'm thinking about it, I plan to be really, really, really famous really soon. And I feel like this podcast will end up on TMZ in a couple years because of all the shit I'm about to tell you about myself. Yeah, but like, 
I'm a 40J cup. Somebody said, holy shit. Yes. Yeah. Try that. Try that, you little double Ds back there. You, I know you get me back there. I saw, yeah. You know, we, we couldn't even really yell. I know why the other people didn't yell. It's because our boobs are sitting on our diaphragm. We don't have, we don't have that kind of air to waste to clap. You see us. But, but like, I have found myself not being able to hang out with women with small boobs. I can't, our lives are just different. Like, like, I can't hang with any woman that can buy more than one bra at a time. Like, seriously. If you can buy a hanger with two or three hook, like, hook bras on it, I, I don't really rock with you. I buy one bra at a time. One bra, 70 bucks. Some of you guys can bra buy your bras right out of Dollar Tree, and I hate you for that. <laughs> Like, seriously, I do. Like, 70 bucks for one bra. And they never come cute. Like, you ever see the little bras in, like, Victoria's Secrets and stuff like that? They're so cute. Our bras come in three colors. Black, white, and what's the third color, guys? Yes, allegedly nude, beige, oatmeal, skin tone, whatever that color my grandmother came up with. We don't get any of the cute, and we don't get any of, like, the cute. Here, you hold that. Make yourself useful. <laughs> you don't have, you have small boobs. I don't know if I can hang out with you. But we don't have any of the cute designs that they have. All we have is that lace right here, ladies. You know, you know what I'm talking, yes. That's all we get. Look at the ladies with the small boobs looking at me going, I don't get it. We know. We know. And our bras never come on a, on a hanger. They come in a box. Because they're artillery. Like, it's a different, like, you have to really, like, I just can't hang with you guys. Anybody that can, like, hook their bra in the front, you're a different type of person. My bra has six hooks on the back. It's like a corset, okay? You literally have to get into a stance to put this big-ass bra on. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And, fellas, just so you know, if you're dating a lady with large boobs, Getting that bra off is the foreplay, okay? <laughs> you get the bra off, everything else belongs to you. Like, you don't need, don't even tell me you love me. You want to show me you love me? Take this damn bra off. <laughs> and I don't know what it is about, like, girls with small boobs that their bra straps never stay on their shoulder. Like, you ever see them, like, with the little spaghetti? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You got the cute little boobs right here. They just kind of fall off. Not women with big boobs. Uh-uh. We got dents and dark marks right here. Our straps never move, ever. As a matter of fact, if it's anybody in this room that has recently gotten married or is about to get married and you have a girl, a bridesmaid, in your wedding party and you're making her wear a strapless dress, I hope you burn in hell. That's how I feel. Like, I hope you burn, because that is some selfish shit to do to somebody. Like, women with my size, like, I walk into Victoria's Secret and alarms go off, like, danger alarms because they don't make a strapless bra to properly fit me after about 45 minutes what it would do fold down like a goddamn awning doesn't it i'm just flipping it up all night i'm sorry i'm having nightmares for my sister's wedding two weeks ago but everything about boobs are different when you think about small boobs and big boobs we even like we come home from work different our lives are different women with small boobs you come home from work Working eight, ten hours, that one hour commute back home, you come in, you kiss your spouse, you hug your kids, you're asking people how their day went, you helping them with homework or whatever it is y'all do. <laughs> Not me. After working eight hours, 
and driving home, when I get home, please, first of all, understand, screw my kids, okay? I don't, I don't even want to see them, and my husband knows that he probably can go straight to hell. There are no kisses. There's nobody asking anybody anything. I just open my door and yell to the back of my house, hey, y'all better tell me what else I got to do before I take this bra off. <laughs> if I take this bra off and I got to go to Walmart, I'm tucking my titties in my pocket. <laughs> and we're out of here. Because you guys know, especially women with big boobs, you all know that nothing makes us happier than coming home popping that bra off, tilting your head back, and scratching right up under here. Right here is the best part. I'm serious. I do. I, I, I told you guys that I have five children, and um, I love them because I want to go see the Lord, and that's what Christ wants us to do is love our children. But I read all the Bibles, and none of them say that I have to like any of them. It doesn't. And I'm glad that the good doctor is here because I want you guys to know that um, a lot of times people try to make me feel bad for having so many children. Five children. They go, <gasps> I'm like, please don't woo my vagina. Um, it, it, it's actually amazing. That's what five kids mean. Five kids means that my vagina is amazing. If I had to put it into perspective, it's like Disneyland for penises. It's the most <laughs> magical place on the face of this country. And every year, just like Disneyland, I try to raise the price to keep broke men out of it. <laughs> every year, just like Disneyland, some broke man finds a Groupon and <laughs> finds his way right back in it. I get so proud. Like, it's, there's something about your vagina that women don't understand that like, we're the most powerful beings on the face of this planet. Everything starts right here. And at least five men rode this ride and couldn't get off. And now I got broke little teddy bears walking around <laughs> that can't pay for themselves. And now I'm going through this midlife crisis because my daughter decided she wanted to have a baby. I know that you guys think that that makes me a grandmother. Absolutely not. That just means that my daughter had a baby, okay? <laughs> And my friends are terrible people. My friends are terrible people because they keep going, what is this baby going to call you? Grandma, Nana, Mima. And I tell them all the time, this baby will call me by my first damn name, okay? Because <laughs> it's not my fucking kid. It's not my kid. Like, seriously, it's not my kid. And the kid can't hold my hand in public either. I don't want people to <laughs> associate us together. Oh, I try to teach my daughters. My daughters are 23 and 21. And uh, they're both, one um, just graduated from Southern and Carbondale, goes to Lukey's. Don't worry, I didn't go to college. I just had babies. <laughs> um, and my other daughters, in they're both in college. And uh, um, w well, when they were both in college, I would give them all the college rules. And you guys know, if you've ever been to college, there's certain things that you teach your, your, your children. Like, a campus that big, never walk alone, especially at night. Make sure that you guys pair up, walk in a group. It's safer that way. You go to the parties, you know, make sure that no one brings you a drink. You go and get your own drink. You come together, you leave together, right? I also told them that uh, sucking dick will get their rent paid. That's what I told them. <laughs> I did. And I told them, and I told them swallowing to get them a house. <laughs> 
I said, look, mommy got the biggest house in the cul-de-sac. And I'm working on the empty lot next door. Don't tell your father, though. <laughs> I am happy that my children are back in school, though. Here's the thing, and you guys know what we just went through with all of our teachers here in Chicago Public School System, so I'm happy to have them back. And I want anybody that works for any school system to know that I believe, especially with having five children, that our teachers are so important. You know, they are like the first example of real-life superheroes for our children. Absolutely. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like, they're amazing. And I knew, I knew that they weren't getting their fair share when my uh, first grader brought home his school supply list. That's when I found out. Six pages, kids in first grade. I went through some of the stuff, and I was like, that's normal, that's normal, that's normal. Why do we need 10 boxes of Kleenex? Are you punching these kids in the nose when they get the answer wrong? Are they? Are you expecting a little outbreak of some sort? I don't know. You know what? I'll get past that. But I got to the last page. And that's where there were a bunch of starred items. And it's like, if you get these, you can guarantee that you'll pass on to the next grade. <laughs> and it was like, queen size down comforter set. <laughs> Preferably in purple. Um, if you can get your hands on insulin, that would be great. And an oil change coupon. I'm like, these teachers are underpaid. But I'm happy that they're back in school because there are certain things that they do at home during the summer that would drive me nuts each and every single day. They would do stuff like wake up. Like, why are you awake? Why are you awake? Don't you know what's sleeping in? It's the summertime. And they would ask me all of these questions just ridiculous questions like what's for breakfast and I'm like if you were in school right now what would you be eating a book eat a fucking book please feed yourself some knowledge do that anybody else in here got kids oh that's weird <laughs> no wonder no wonder the whole room is like that's cute but I don't get it we're in a room full of swallowers. This is great. This is great. Okay. I've never had this happen. Now, I've been the minority before, but damn, y'all. Well, I'll tell you what it's like. When my kids are in school, I can masturbate everywhere. Living room, dining room, kitchen, on top of the bread. That's garlic butter now. <laughs> Doc said the smell was all right, okay? My vagina, my life. That's right. Hell, in their room. Don't sit on your beds. On dad. Don't kiss daddy. But when they're home for the summer, you guys have to understand, masturbation is like a covert operation. You have to go in the room, close the door, lock the door. But now you have to put the chair up under the doorknob because that smart-ass seven-year-old knows how to take the butter knife and pop the lock if you don't answer when they're going, mom, 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 the house is on fire. Well, get the fuck out and save yourself, okay? I'm busy. I got a window, okay? Oh, those children, those children. I kept having them because I forgot to swallow. Apparently, I wasn't hanging out with y'all. These guys use protection. I thought I did. No, I didn't. <laughs> know who I'm kidding. That, once again, was Corey Bell, who you can currently see on tour with Monique on Laugh Mobs Laugh Tracks or at a funeral near you.
One thing I forgot to bring up with Dr. Jen is that she too has a TV show. You can stream Jen Splaining on the CBC's streaming service in Canada or in other countries with the assistance of a VPN. Overall, I'm really happy with how this first event went, but it also was a learning experience. I think we're going to try some other recording techniques for future live shows, particularly when it comes to capturing audience questions. You mentioned water. Uh, so does that mean we should not use our shower heads? <laughs> uh, it's fine on the outside, um, but you shouldn't have, you know, it's, it's ideal not to have water going up inside in the vagina. So, Do we have other verbal questions? We did. And the next person wanted advice on finding a good OBGYN. So, you know, finding a good OBGYN, I mean, obviously what's what one person thinks is going to be good is going to might not be what other persons thinks, right? So different people have different communication styles, that type of thing. So you want someone obviously who's medically accurate as well. So I would want someone who is, um, you know, is board certified. You can check that up um, on the American Board of OBGYNs. You, um, I would also recommend someone that's a member of ACOG, which is the American College of OBGYNs. Um, but that just gives you knowledge. I think the best thing is to ask your friends, you know, for her to ask her friends who they go to because, you know, she's going to know personality types with friends and and go from there. So I think personal recommendations are probably the best. So I just saw that Corey just bought a copy of your book. Aww. <laughs> Thank and you so much. I was wondering when you were up there if if I was in like the big boob or the small boob category. That's why I didn't clap because I'm I'm like a double D. Is that is that is that big or small or in between? You can claim you can claim big. <laughs> 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 in case you couldn't make that out, Corey called Dr. Jen trans-slender, and the next questioner inquired into whether menstrual cups are okay to use. Great. If you like it, absolutely. There's a lot of great options for menstrual periods and many more than certainly, you know, when I, I started my period in the 80s. Um, so, yeah. So menstrual cups are great options. Um, there is also um, the period underwear now as well, which is fairly absorbent for someone who's, you know, using like a super plus tampon or, you know, using like, you know, needing us, you know, like the big maxi pad during the day that they're probably not going to be enough. But for people who have lighter periods, absolutely. So, yeah. The only thing about cups is there's a false perception that they're not associated at all with toxic shock syndrome, and they would be. Now, the risk is very low in general for toxic shock syndrome. We're talking about one to two per 100,000. But there is some data that says that the just rinsing in between isn't going to clean off the toxin. So it's best to do probably the full cleaning in between each change. So I recommend people have two cups. So, you know, you can, you know, or, you know, use a backup method while you're, you know, boiling or cleaning the cup as, as directed. A friend of mine has been talking about... Um, Vaginal uh, vitiligo. Oh, uh huh. Yeah. Because she keeps calling her vagina Michael Jackson, and I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but she was talking about how it gets worse the older that she gets. Is there anything to stop it, or is there anything that she should be worried about? So, um, so she would mean vulvar vitiligo. So vitiligo doesn't affect the vagina. So it's vitiligo is the loss of pigment, so the loss of melanin, uh, and it's a 
it's an autoimmune related condition. So someone who has other autoimmune conditions may be more likely to have it. Um, it can be worse with age, mostly because any kind of trauma and the older you get, the more vulnerable your skin is to trauma. So trauma can also kind of make it worse. And that could include like trauma from shaving or other things. The best thing is to see a dermatologist. Um, sometimes there are topical treatments and other things that can be done. Uh, and, and so I would recommend seeing a dermatologist for that. Absolutely. Great question. Have you heard of babbing? And if so, is there any scientific data behind whether it works? You're gonna have to tell me what that is. That's the first time someone's asked me a question that I haven't known ever. That's awesome. Oh my God. Basically, I'm um, using your vaginal fluids as perfume, so you could like put it on your neck, and apparently, like the pheromones like attracts the attention of people. Well, so there wouldn't be your vagina. <laughs> So your vagina wouldn't ha doesn't have pheromones. So there aren't pheromones produced from your vagina. But I would say if you want to do that, you be you. That's cool. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, there wouldn't be a pheromonal thing. And uh, there's a lot of debate among evolutionary biologists whether we're even motivated by pheromones, um, whether they've kind of lost their evolutionary purpose or not. Um, so from a scientific standpoint, whether it's going to attract someone, I can't say. But if you like that, you be you. I'm cool with that. Do you talk, do you speak against vajazzling? Um, yeah. So, you know, putting, um, putting sparkly things on your vulva, you know, using spirit gum and glue that you have to, you know, that could cause irritation and stuff like that. So, you know, <laughs> you know, but again, I also say it's your body and your choice. And I just give people the risks and the benefits and they decide for themselves. Now, is there anything we haven't addressed that you think we should. We've talked a lot about a lot of things and new things that we'd never heard of. Uh, just make sure you're registered to vote. Okay. Because as pseudoscience doesn't just find its way into scammy products and other types of things, there are laws being created in our country based on, you know, pseudoscience and um, bodies are being weaponized. And we have people who can't access reproductive rights. They can't access abortion. Uh, we have laws being created uh, so trans people can't get the care that they need. And all of these laws are based on, you know, pseudoscience and bastardization of science. And so if you care about facts, make sure you get registered to vote because um, because people's lives depend on it. One more time for Dr. Jen Gunter. I think we, I, <laughs> and one more time for Corey Bell as well. Corey, and that was our show. Full disclosure: a few Q's and A's were edited out of the podcast. I want to thank Dr. Jen Gunter, comedian Corey Bell, and the Pleasure Chest for making this happen, and to everyone who showed up, especially the people who had to stand or sit on the floor. Not a single one of you complained, or at least not to me, or seemed to mind at all. And I really appreciate your delightful demeanors and easygoing approach to this event. One final thing before we go, on the last episode, I fucked up one of the thank yous. At the end, I said thank you, Debo. When I should have said Dido, that's the person's name who helped me with street interviews at Folsom Street Fair. So to make up for it, here are a group of very intoxicated people screaming their appreciation for Dido because I told them to. Thank you, Dido! 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 Dido!
Loved it. <laughs> Thank you, Dido. And of course, special thanks as always to Sean Payne and Louis DeMeo for all that you do, and to Ben Jordan the Flashbulb for our theme music. I am also excited about officiating Ben's wedding in just a few days. We will be back soon with a show about the sugar lifestyle, aka the sugar bowl. Until then, adios. I'm the vaginal antichrist, motherfucker.